Excellent. It's great to be with you. It's also good to be doing the last one before the change around so I don't have to squeeze three preaches into, uh, into a morning um, like Alid will be doing uh, next week. So uh, it's, it's particularly good. Let me move that water. Great. Um, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors at King's. It's great. I'm more based in the Hastings venue. So it's uh, always a real joy when I come over and join, uh, join you in Bexhill. Central St. Leonard's um, uh, starts this afternoon at four o'clock for their first Vision and Values um, afternoon. So while you're digesting uh, your Sunday lunch, please do remember to pray for them. Uh, they're going to be meeting um, uh, every other month this year. Just while we practice, we try stuff out, um, we see how things uh, work. So please do pray for John and Al and the team uh, that God will bless them and lead them. Um, in that, as we sort of step into that next exciting part um, of our adventure together. Um, last, um, about a week ago, a week and a half ago, I had the uh, uh, joy, really, of being on holiday. I was up in North Wales, and we had a really, really lovely time. Um, and I thought, what book should I take with me? So I took um, uh, this book, uh, God's Lavish Grace by Terry Virgo. Um, it's been out, oh, years and years, decades, probably. And I read it a long, long time ago and thought, well, I'll, I'll just have another read. You know, uh, God's grace is very lavish, so it'd be good to remind myself, you know, of how lavish it is. Um, so I thought I'd have another read. And as I was going through it, I realized that um, it's really based out of Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, which is what we're doing in this preach series. So if you um, just want to have more opportunity to grow and learn and understand the passage, as well as, in a sense, picking something up of Terry Virgo, who um, set up the family of churches that... that that we are part of um, here, um, I'd recommend uh, that you uh, purchase a copy. There's two copies up in the foyer that you could uh, buy now for eight pounds. Um, but if you want this copy, first person to come get it can have it. Well done, Judy. Well done. <laughs> there was definitely a hesitancy from the back rows there. Can we get there in time? I don't think we can. Um, brilliant. We're, we're going to continue the preach series, The Gospel, God's Power for Christian Living. Um, we want to know God's power, don't we? I do. I want to know God's power for Christian living. I, I want to understand what God has done for me. I want to understand the richness, the truth, the um, uh, wonder of it. So we're going to be continuing on. Uh, Steve looked at Romans 7, verses 1 to 6 last week. Uh, we're going to be picking up in verse 7 and going to the end of the chapter um, uh, over the course of this uh, week. When we speak about the law, we're not talking about the laws of this land. So in this preach here, when I talk about the law, we're talking about the Mosaic law, the law given uh, through Moses that came to the people of Israel. Um, the Ten Commandments are in it, and they're part of it. That's not all of it, but I, I just want to be very clear on that so that when you're thinking about the law... Um, we're certainly not saying that we're free from the laws of the land. We're not saying that at all. Um, it's good that we obey the laws of the land and we do what it says. But as we're going to look here, we're going to see that we are actually free from. We have died to the Mosaic law, and we're going to unpick and look at some of that stuff here. When Steve was uh, preaching last uh, week, he said, he, he shared how that as Christians we have died to the law, just as we've died to the power of sin. So we're no longer under its authority. We are now free to live God's way through the Holy Spirit um, rather than the law. 
we are free to live and bear fruit for God as God um, intended. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the law again. Um, there's quite a few verses. We're going to split it into sections. So I'm going to read a bit out, then I'll explain it, then we'll read um, uh, some more verses. The first section is by far the longest. So if you're looking at your watches and looking at the first section thinking, God dear, we've got another two sections to go after this. This is going to be a late lunch. Don't worry. First section by far the longest. The last two we will go through um, quite quickly. So Romans chapter 7, and we're going to pick up verses 7 to 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The Apostle Paul starts uh, with a question. He, he often starts with a question, a new uh, section. He, he poses a question that, that if my sinful passions have been aroused by the law, which is what it says in verse 5, Steve looked at it um, uh, last week, does that mean that the law is sin? Does that, does that mean that the law is a bad thing? If, if when I read the law and I understand it, actually it, it, it sort of draws me, causes me to want to do more stuff wrong, is therefore God's law wrong, sin? Um, Paul answers very clearly. He says, by no means. Certainly not. God forbid that you should think such a thing. The law is good. The law is righteous. But the law does show us what sin is. The law, and this is my first point, reveals sin's strength. And it's really important that we don't rush this. It reveals sin. It reveals the law, shows us how deep sin has gone into our lives. It shows us that it's not just a surface or an external thing. Can you imagine if I, I put the Ten Commandments up on the screen? They're not there, by the way, but I put them up, and we're all going to stand, okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to go through them one at a time, and if, if you've committed that sin, you've got to sit down. And we see, we see who stands, who's still standing at the end. You could imagine going through it a little bit like a checklist, um, do not murder. And you think, oh, one out of ten, good, off to a good start. Um, do not lie. Well, <laughs> um, do not steal. Don't disobey your parents. And maybe, maybe you'd go through that list and at the end of it you might think, you know what, I'm doing all right. I've got six or seven out of ten. You know, that's not too bad. And you may even be looking along the road going, Cough, and I'm not like Steve Young, he won't have got more than three. 
And if we're not careful, we think it's just an external thing. Just keeping a certain set of rules. You know, in that whole comparison thing, if you're not careful, you go, well, hey, at least I'm not like those bankers. You know, they're really greedy. They steal all the money. Or at least we're not like those politicians. You know, because if we're not careful, what we do is we, 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 we take the law that's good and we don't really apply it to ourselves. We use it to judge other people. Or, or those professional football as well, the money they waste. Or, or those scroungers. They're awful people. And so if we're not careful, we, we view the law as just something external. But the Apostle Paul, he doesn't want us to just view it as external. He wants to show us the true value of the law, that it isn't something external, it's something internal. And so he picks the last commandment, and he applies that to the, the Roman Christians. And he actually, what he does, in a moment, he makes a level playing field. Because it doesn't matter whether you think you're getting 6 out of 10, or 7 out of 10, or 8 out of 10, or 2 out of 10. This is an absolute complete leveler. Because he goes and he says, you shall not covet. You shall not covet. You, if you don't know what that is, that's to, well, I'll explain it in a minute. But in, in essence, it's wanting something that you haven't got. It's a desiring of something that you do not have. He says, for I would, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Tim Keller says this about coveting. To covet is to be discontent with what God has given you. Just let that pause for a moment. Have you ever been discontent with what God has given you? Coveting includes envy, self-pity, grumbling, and murmuring. Coveting is not simply wanting, it's an idolatrous longing for more beauty. Any of you ever wanted that? Wealth, approval, popularity, wanting more than you've got. It's not wrong to want such things, but if you are bitter and downcast when you don't achieve them, it is because the desire for them has become an idolatrous coveting. In a moment, the Apostle Paul, through the law, has leveled it. Because there isn't a single person in this room that hasn't coveted. We all have, at some point or other. And it's not just narrowing about possessions, although that in itself is a hard enough bar to clear, have you ever wanted to be cleverer? Have you ever wanted to be thinner? Have you ever wanted more recognition or just to be seen or recognized? And when you weren't, it caused a bitterness and a you were just down and fed up and grunt. Well, we've all, it's all been leveled. And we realize that it's not just about the external things of what we say, what we do, what we act. That sin has invaded our hearts and is very deep-rooted within it. It comes out in all sorts of ways. Back in the summer, in August, that you know that sunny month where the sun always shines? We went down to Devon um, uh, camping, 
And on the Friday, I can still remember it because I'm scarred by it, uh, we enjoyed 50 mile an hour winds and horizontal rain. And I can remember peeking out the tent looking through as the rain blew straight in. Um, and we were surrounded by all these beautiful caravans with lights on. You know, curtains drawn open just so we could see the fun they were having inside. And if I said that a covetous desire did not grow and linger and grab hold, I would, I would be lying. The human heart always wanting more. A lack of contentment in what God has provided. I deserve it. I've worked hard for it. Can it you can even hide it under that. I've worked hard. I deserve these things. The Apostle Paul uses the sin of coveting to show the depth and power of sin. And I think it's so apt in our day, isn't it? I mean, the whole way the media works, our, our whole economy is based on coveting. That's how it works. You, you paint a picture of something that you don't have in order that people paint a picture of things that we don't have in order that we want them and therefore we buy them. Often when we can't afford them or, or it might be a lifestyle that we want. Or, or it might be a look that we want that we haven't got. But, but there is that looking, that, that, that encouraging. It's nearly seen as a, an attribute. Do you remember what Jesus taught on Sermon on the Mount? That sin is not just a matter of external behavior. It's all, about, it's all about what's going on in the heart. He says, do not murder. But actually, if you've been angry with your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. I mean, Jesus said the law was never just about an external thing. It was to reveal sin's strength. It was to reveal how sin has gripped humanity. It says, the law says, do not commit adultery. But for any of you that have lusted, you have already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is... Not just a superficial problem. How often have you, and I, I've done it so many times, I say something I shouldn't say, and I do apologize for the words, but I don't dig around in here to find out why I said them in the first place, because Jesus is quite clear. You know, it may have been an unfortunate word, we shouldn't have said it, but, but there's something going on in here that flowed out. It came out from a, the source, your heart, had something wrong going on in it. I just want to show a post, it's a Twitter post from someone that is running to be an MP at the moment. Um, and five years ago, on the back of seeing one of these uh, uh, reality TV sort of show things, said some stuff they shouldn't have said. And so we're going to look at that, and then we're going to look at what, how they apologized. And I want it to provoke us. So in the posts, following the broadcast of the first episode of Benefit Street five years ago, Miss dot, dot, dot. And by the way, I'm not doing it to judge this person. I'm doing it because it's this stuff is in all of us. It may not be in this circumstance, but it's there. Miss dot 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 said, Benefit Street, anyone else watching this? Wow, these people are unreal. Responding to another user's comment, she said, my blood is boiling, these people need putting down. Now, it was picked up in the media last week, um, so I think it was actually last Sunday. So she apologized. 
In a statement released on Sunday, Miss dot 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 said, these comments were made off the cuff and a number of years ago. However, I accept that my use of language was unacceptable and I'd like to apologise for any upset I have caused. It's right she's apologised for that, but the problem isn't there. The problem is what's going on in here. What is it that she's thinking about other people that caused that to flow out? Now, please, before we sit there nodding our heads, before I sit there nodding my head going, yes, what's in your heart, lady? What about us? The law says do not covet. The law isn't sin, but it does reveal it. The law reveals the sin's strength, the strength of sin. got some other things to say, but I just want to I want to move it on. The second point. The law reveals my weakness. We're going to look at the next passage here, and uh, it's quite a contentious passage, actually. Probably one of the most contentious in the New Testament. People are often arguing about who is the person that the Apostle Paul is writing about. Is it a Christian? Is it someone who's seeking after God? Uh, is it someone a million miles away from God? And to be honest, great, talented, very gifted theologians disagree and argue on this. Uh, as best as I know, um, and as best as uh, I, I feel from reading it through, is I, I cannot see that this person is a Christian. I think this is someone that has an understanding of who God is and God's holiness, but as he's trying to reach him, he realizes, actually, he's too weak. He can't do it. His own effort, he cannot reach to God. But like I say, there would be people um, that would have a different perspective to me. So let's have a read through this. It's quite complicated. I will definitely make mistakes as I read it because you'll see when we're reading it, he's, he hasn't done it to make it easy for me, put it this way. So, for we know that the law is spiritual. The law is good. But I am of the flesh sold under sin. See, a Christian isn't sold under sin. You're not sold out. If you are a believer in Jesus, you've been set free from the power of sin. We read that in Romans 6. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin, dwells, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Um, it's quite a tricky passage to read. 
But what we get here is someone that is desperate to do what is right in God's sight, but an inability to do it. They, they try, but it's like evil walking close at hand. My best efforts, my best attempts, and I keep coming short. And he finishes with this, I suppose, gut-wrenching, heart-wrenching statement, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's as though that he's got to the very end of his tether. He's tried everything. He can see something of God. He can see that God is good. He can see that the law is good and righteous and true. And he tries to reach, but he can't. He cannot do it. His best efforts fall short. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And it reminds me um, of Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 5. And uh, you may be familiar with it, but here the prophet Isaiah, he has a vision. And in the vision, he sees the temple of God, and he sees God is there in his great might and glory and size and strength. And it says the train of his robe fills the temple, and there are seraphim and angels there. And the angels are flying, and with two wings they fly, two wings they cover their eyes, two wings they cover their face. What is it they're singing? Holy, holy, holy um, is the Lord God Almighty, or something along those words. What is Isaiah's response? He is undone. Face, ground, face down on the ground. Oh, um, he says, I, I am a man with unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He comes face to face with God. And he realizes God's holiness, his sinfulness, and his lack of ability to get towards God. There's a distance, there's a massive difference between human beings and God, and we cannot, however hard we try, however good we attempt to be, we cannot close that gap. The Lord does the same thing as that encounter, that vision that Isaiah had. We see God's holiness, we realize our sinfulness, we cannot get there on our own. I'd, I'd encourage you, just have a look. Isaiah 6, 1 to 5, look at this passage, you'll see the similarities. And it leaves you really in a wretched place. It leaves you condemned. At the end of seven, where are we meant to be left? We are without hope and we are without God in the world. We cannot get there. The law is too high a bar. I cannot reach God on my own. But then there is this glorious statement in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's like a trailer for Romans chapter 8 that we're going to get to next week. It's just a little hint the Apostle Paul puts in. It's like he can't resist. I've got to bring it in um, at this point here. Oh, thanks be to God. Why? Because if you've understood what's going on in chapter 7... Actually, what you've been reminded of is we are in a hopeless situation. We need someone who can stand in our place. I need someone who is stronger than I. I need someone who is victorious over sin. I, I need something outside of myself, my own independence. If I stick in my own independent life, I will remain condemned. Unless I realize I need one stronger than I, I can never get out of it. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law leads me to Jesus. It leads me to the foot of the cross. It leads me to say, oh, I need a saviour. 
And unless we've understood how much we need a saviour, we never worship Jesus as we should. Because if you think you're sort of all right, and Jesus just topped you up a little bit, that's how you're going to worship God. I was all right, needed a bit of a top up, Jesus came along, all is good. But if you realise that you're bankrupt without him, you cannot pay off your own debts. But Jesus came, cleared your debts, and loaded your bank account as well, just to bless you. It causes your heart to join with the Apostle Paul. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we go into Romans 8 verses 1 to 4, and I'm going to read them, but I'm not going to dwell there because that's, that's Alid's privilege next week. But, but just in a sense, these, this, these opening words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There isn't. There should be. But there isn't because of what Jesus Christ has done. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law could never save you by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, in you, in me, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Do you know what? You have been qualified. You have fulfilled the law. You are no longer a 2 or a 3 out of 10 or a 7 or an 8 out of 10, but because of what Jesus Christ has done and you've been included into him, you're now 10 out of 10 and nothing can shake you out of that. It can't. All is a free gift. It's absolutely wonderful. The law has been fulfilled on your behalf and you are hidden in Christ. Wow, there is now no condemnation. None, not a little bit. And if you're feeling it right now, that isn't from God, it's from the enemy. So you ignore what the enemy says, because if you're a Christian, there's none. You are righteous as a free gift. Absolutely no condemnation. Not even a little bit. Not a little bit. And it is true for every single one of us. Can I have the band back up, please? It's good news. Really good news. It's good news what Jesus has done. I didn't write a sort of a sort of conclusion, closing thing. I didn't think I'd get that far. So uh, why don't we stand on our feet? We're just going to uh, we're, we're going to pray now. I have deliberately lingered on the power of sin because next week we're going to linger in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Can I just ask you where you are in your own words, just to take a moment, just to thank God for Jesus, for righteousness is a gift, that, that he has fulfilled the law on your behalf, that, that you know him and that you are saved. When you speak it out, it's good sometimes just to verbalize stuff so you get to listen to yourself. Which that's good. Why don't we just have a few people just speak it out from where they are? 
We're going to have bread and wine now, um, and Claire will sort of lead us through on the sort of practical details, but, but this is for anyone who's a follower of Jesus, um, whether this is your church, is your home or not. Um, if even from what I've said, you just feel the Holy Spirit is prompting you uh, about stuff in your life that's not lined up, don't use that as an excuse not to take the bread and wine, but, but deal with it. Just, just come before God, repent, say you're sorry. Um, and then take the bread and wine, remembering what Jesus has um, achieved for you.